And so we've been working our way through the book of Matthew the last few weeks, and we're in the middle of an extended passage where Matthew shares all these stories about Jesus healing. Um, And this is what it looks like for the kingdom of Jesus to touch down in our world. Healing breaks out, wrongs are set right, and last week Al talked about how Jesus heals the unclean and how Jesus stopped the storm. And we've been seeing how Matthew is building this case study of the different categories of Jesus's healing authority, healing for the outcast, healing for the enemy, healing for the unclean, healing for nature itself. We saw last week, it's not just people who are broken. Creation itself has been broken by the sin of people. But in between the stories that Al talked about last week, in between the story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law and Jesus healing the chaos effects of sin in nature, is this odd little conversation that we're going to talk about today. And it's really a weird little section because you're like, he's giving all these healing stories, and then there's this little side conversation. And you're like, Matthew carefully arranged his gospel. He has this long segment of healing stories. Why did he include this? Well, I don't think Matthew makes mistakes in his carefully curated gospel. We're going to talk about what he was doing there today. Now, one of the good things about preaching through a uh, a book of the Bible, verse by verse, like we've been doing through Matthew for the last couple of years, is you can't skip challenging passages. Because this is a difficult passage. This passage today that we're going to look at, some of us would probably ignore it. It's not going to be a message where you walk away and you're like, Alex, I feel so pumped up. I'm so excited about life, Alex. Thanks so much for preaching that. It's more when you're going to walk away and say, I need to think about that. I, I need to spend some time and really pray about this and think about that. But... I think that sometimes um, dealing with, working through difficult passages is exactly what we need. You know the muscles that hurt the worst when you go to the gym? They're your weakest muscles. They're the ones that are most in need of being worked out and being strengthened. And often our desire to avoid a difficult passage reveals an area that needs to be developed in our spiritual lives. And so, all this is just a preface. This is going to be a challenging passage. It's going to work out some spiritual muscles in us that may feel weak. And we may walk out a little bit sore, but I think we're going to be spiritually stronger as a result. Okay, everybody, let's take a deep breath. Let's read the conversation in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Uh, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Jesus is completely different than modern preachers, right? Jesus sees the crowd. He's like, how can I get away from them? Um, verse 19, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Ouch. Like, why did Jesus say that? Let's look at it. Um, now, I remember in Tennessee, we did this thing at the church I was at in Tennessee. Um, this was before I was in ministry. I was in seminary. But they would take high school students, and they would bring them all in for like a weekend conference. And they would partner up groups of high school students with college students, young adults. And they would kind of, as a mentoring um, type of thing. And first of all, people in college, they barely know what they're doing with their lives. Like, them trying to mentor high school students was a terrible decision. But that's what we did. And so I remember sitting down with this young man who had been invited to come from a friend. He was a football player at the local high school. This was a popular guy, and uh, he had heard all this talk about Jesus during the weekend, and he sat down with me, and uh, he said, how can I get enough of Jesus that I avoid hell, but not so much that it affects who I'm sleeping with, who I'm partying with, and how I'm living my life? 
Now, I really appreciated his honesty. That's an honest question. A lot of us just kind of think that, but we don't say it. Um, how many of us think that, yes, I want enough Jesus to avoid divine wrath, but not so much that it affects my sex life or how I spend my money or how I treat my neighbors. I want Jesus, but not so much that it affects my rage or my politics or my career. We want a Jesus, and we want a relationship with Jesus that was never the offer on the table. Becoming a disciple is not an offer we make to Jesus on our terms. We come to him on his terms. And I told this young man, with Jesus, it's all or nothing. Like, you can't get enough of Jesus for just the good parts and not have any sacrifice, surrender, or repentance. We don't come to him with caveats. There's no prenup to your relationship with Jesus. You know how sometimes rich, famous people get married and they have a prenup, like, eh, in case this doesn't work out, you don't get any money. You know, we got a prenup. There's no prenup with Jesus. There's no prenup to your relationship with God. When you become a relationship, when you become a disciple, you lay all your cards on the table. It's a real and total surrender. People want enough of Jesus to get to heaven, but not so much that he disrupts how they live their lives. Jesus always disrupts our lives, but it's a good disruption. We want a convenient Jesus that keeps us from fearing death, a convenient Jesus that keeps us from dealing with shame, but not one that interrupts our plans and our ambitions. The only problem is a convenient Jesus isn't king. And what Matthew's been saying over and over again is that Jesus is king. That imaginary Jesus that is convenient, that only gives us what we want and not what we need, is our slave, not our king. A convenient Jesus gives us healing when we need it and forgiveness when we feel ashamed, but never asks us to obey. That convenient Jesus doesn't exist. He's a caricature to make us feel better, not a real person who transforms us into better people. Um, one biblical scholar talking about this passage said, this first disciple, this first would-be disciple, is like a young man who looks at soldiers in dress uniforms in a parade and wants to join the army. He sees all the glittering medals. He sees all the glistening tanks. He sees them marching proudly in all their best uniforms. And he's like, yes, I want to join the military. But he doesn't realize that what you're really joining is mud and exhaustion and hunger and horrors and death. He sees the glamour and wants to sign up, but the glamour is only 1% of the experience. The reality of taking a life and seeing your friends killed before your eyes is the other 99%. That's the first would-be disciple here. And Jesus says to that guy, I don't want you to be tricked. I'm not trying to pull anything over on you. Have you ever signed a really long contract and really far down in the really fine print? It's like, by the way, this is 300% interest over the next 19 years, and you'll actually pay $10,000 for this $200 item. And you're like, what? They were trying to trick me. Jesus isn't doing that. He doesn't whisper the fine print. I, sometimes in churches we do that, right? We're like, follow Jesus. It's amazing. And it is amazing. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. Often the way we talk about the gospel leaves people confused because we emotionally manipulate them into a spiritual decision that they aren't ready for yet. Jesus is right up front with the reality of what it means to come and follow him. It is a free offer, but it is a free offer to come and die to ourselves to live for him. To die to our dreams and our ambitions and our goals and make the kingdom of Jesus our priority. The thing that we spend our lives on. Now, he doesn't do this because he's cruel and controlling. He's like, you're going to give up your life, and you're going to live for my kingdom. He does this because living for him and his kingdom is the highest form of human flourishing. Pursuing his kingdom is the most abundant human life we can live. 
So what's the stage here for this scenario with these two would-be disciples? Jesus has just announced, I'm going to go to the other side of the lake. And then what does this guy say? Oh, I could do that. The other side of the lake isn't too far. Uh, it won't take too long to go there. If I change my mind, I can come back. It's familiar territory. They still speak the same language. They still do things the same way on the other side of the lake. It's familiar over there. It's safe. It's not going to cost me too much to follow Jesus to the other side of the lake. And so he says, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll follow you to the other side of the lake. And here's what Jesus responds. If you follow me, I don't promise you a bed or a home. I don't promise comfort or safety. To follow Jesus means sacrificing what is familiar and comfortable and safe. How willing, how far are we willing to follow Jesus? What if following him means leaving what is familiar, comfortable, and safe? And this would-be disciple wanted to loudly announce his intentions to follow Jesus, right? He could have just got in the boat with Jesus and been like, I'm coming too. But what did he do? He, there was a crowd there, and he's like, I'm following you, Jesus. I'll go with you anywhere across the lake, as long as it's not too much farther than that, you know. He, uh, he announced it loudly so that people could praise him. He could have just followed Jesus, but he wanted to talk about it loudly so people noticed more than he actually wanted to do it. John Onwuchekwa, a pastor in Atlanta, had this insight. You know how long I practiced saying that name this week? Probably more than anything else in this sermon, I practiced saying this pastor's name. Brilliant guy. Go read his book on grief. It's amazing. Anyway, he's a pastor in Atlanta, and he had this insight regarding this phenomenon, which still happens today. People announce loudly things that they say they want to do for Jesus instead of actually just doing it. Here's what he said. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. So we know that someone's public affection for Jesus might not be telling the whole story. Just because someone has public affection for Jesus doesn't mean they're telling the whole story about their spiritual lives. Now, Jesus here was healing, and as a result of that, lots of sick people were coming to be healed, but there was a second type of person that was gathering. People were gathering because Jesus was healing, but the second person was not a person in need of healing, not a person wanting to help bring healing, a person who saw the crowd and wanted to take advantage of the moment to gain influence and a platform for themselves. And that's exactly what this guy is. This guy is like, oh, a lot of people are coming to Jesus. He's doing some miraculous things. I can get in on this, and I can get influence. I can get a position. I can get power. The church can be a perfect place for narcissists to hide because you can pursue endless self-promotion and say it's all for Jesus. And there is nothing quite as deceptive as a crowd, and many times as pastors, it's very easy to be deceived. There is nothing quite as intoxicating as a stage, because standing up in front of people, you start to think, man, I've really got it together. I really know this. Like, people are coming to hear me. Like, you start feeling pretty good about yourself. So let me just, a little caveat here. As we read through about what it means to be a disciple, I do not have this all figured out. I'm not up here and I'm like, I'm a great disciple. Get on my level. Yeah, my wife can tell you. She's back there amening. I'm not. In the company of Jesus, we are all beginners. Now, there's a second man that chimes up. Now, if Jesus had just shot you down like this, if I had been there, I'd be like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to stay quiet. Because Jesus just put that guy in his place, I'm going to stay quiet as I possibly can. But the second guy chimes up. After that first rebuke, he's like, oh, I'm going to say something. He goes, well, you know, that guy won't follow you where it's not familiar or comfortable or safe. But I will, Jesus. I'll follow you anywhere. But let me bury my dad first. Now, 
Jesus seems cruel here, right? His comment, let the dead bury their dead. That's dark. That seems really cruel. Is Jesus being cruel? No. Most biblical school scholars think that this guy hadn't slipped away from his dad's funeral for a minute to see Jesus get in a boat. Like, oh, we're laying my father to rest. Hold on, Jesus is getting in a boat. I'm going to go check that out, and then I'll be back. That's not what's happening. Most people agree that his dad was still very much alive, very much healthy, and he is saying, once my dad dies and I get my inheritance, then I'm willing to sacrifice familiar, comfortable, and safe for you, Jesus. If I, lay, if I leave now, dad might write me out of the will. I may not get the money that's coming to me. I may not get what I need, what I want, what I desire, what I've spent my whole life waiting for. So he intends to get serious about following Jesus one day, just not today. If he got serious today, he might miss out on some important experiences. He might miss out on money. No, don't we all do that? We say, oh yeah, I'm going to get serious about following Jesus after I graduate, after I get married, after I get that job, after I have kids, after my kids move out, after I retire, after I die. Oh, you're out of time at that point, right? I will give to the church once I make this amount. I will serve more once I do this. I will, once this happens, sometime in the future, just not right now, it, I will do it. I really will. Just not today, not tomorrow. Somewhere out there. I've been reading a lot about the psychology of future selves. Um, I love this meme, by the way. It says, tomorrow, a mystical land where 99% of all human productivity, motivation, and achievement is stored. Tomorrow. That's when we'll do it. That's where all the energy is. That's where all the power is, right? Tomorrow. The psychology of future selves is the human tendency to believe that the future us will be thinner. The future us will have more emotional ca capacity. The future us will be more generous, will have more energy than our present self. Have you ever said yes to something and then the day arrives and you're like, why did I say yes? I don't want to do this. I'm tired. I'm wore out. Why did I say yes? Why did two weeks ago I think that I would want to do this? I'm tired. I'm wore out. Why is that? Because we always imagine that the future us will have more time, more energy, be more willing to be more able to have a greater capacity, and then the future us becomes a present us, and we're like, ah, I will do that just tomorrow or the next day or the next week. I used to tell people, ah, oh, I can't meet right now. I'm in a really busy season. But then I realized that season never ended. I just always said I was in a busy season all the time. And I realized it wasn't a season. I was just busy. I was choosing to be busy. That wouldn't magically change in the future. I kept waiting for it to change like the seasons change. I don't make it turn into summer. It just happens. I wanted that to happen in my life. But your life won't magically change unless you change something today. Today, what you say and do and think is the best indication of what you will say and do and think tomorrow. Changes don't happen suddenly. They happen gradually as you continue them day after day. They happen as you start something new today, and then you continue to do it tomorrow and the next day and the next. The change you put off tomorrow, until tomorrow will live in a future tomorrow forever, and it will be a future tomorrow again and again and again and never come true. And Jesus whispers to us, Will you follow me right here, right now? Not tomorrow, not after this happens, not later, right now, no exceptions, no excuses. Today we call followers of Jesus Christians. I don't think that's a bad title. I'm not in some war against the title of Christians. But I think there is something lost in no longer calling, calling his followers disciples. Because people think they can become a Christian without be, being a disciple. We've told them becoming a disciple is optional. That's like 
Christianity leveled up. You know, you got Christians, then you got disciples. If you're really into it, you're really excited about it, then you can really get serious about it and become a disciple. I don't think for Jesus there is any option. You're, if you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. John Mark Comer commented that this passage has two groups in it, the crowds and the disciples. And I thought he had such a good insight here. He says, in modern America, we've combined the crowds and the disciples, and we call them all Christians. The crowds and the disciples were following Jesus for very different reasons, though. The crowds followed him because they wanted something from him. The disciples followed him to be with him, to become like him so they could do what he are we the crowd, or are we the disciples? Germany in the 20th century was the most Christian nation on earth. Most historians say that America in the 1940s was about uh, between 89 to 90% Christian, if you just went up and you asked people when you took a poll. But in Germany, some historians say Christianity was 98% in Germany when Hitler came to power. 98% of people would say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, I believe in the Bible, I am a Christian. Hitler came to power because of Christians. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, this is his picture here, he was a pastor and theologian who was eventually killed by the Nazis. He looked around at the Christians who brought Hitler to power, the Christians who ran his concentration camps, and the Christians who fought in his army, and he saw a cheap grace. People who had recited a doctrinal creed, but never committed to live out the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. People who prayed a prayer of faith, but didn't love their neighbor. People who saw Jesus as supportive of anything they did, even if it was against his teachings. Bonhoeffer named his famous theology book that he wrote during this time, Observing the Rise of Nazi Germany. He, wrote, he called this book, The Cost of Discipleship. Here's a quote from that book. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring any repentance. Baptism without any church discipline. Communion without any confession. Absolution of your sins without any personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand. It's the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods to get. It is the kingly role of Jesus the Christ, for whose sake a man would pluck out his own eyes if it caused him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Diedrich Bonhoeffer looked at Christianity which brought Hitler to power and produced one of the greatest atrocities in the history of humanity And he said this isn't like Christ. That's what Christian means. He says this is cheap grace as, e as evil as Hitler was, he didn't kill anyone. We don't have any record of him killing anyone personally Instead he convinced millions of Christians to kill for him it's easy to point to the Germans and call out this behavior, but American Christians in the 1940s did the exact same thing in the 1940s, there were estimated to be 15,000 Christians in Japan. 15,000 Christians in Japan. The atom bomb killed 10,000 of those 15,000 in a second. This is a picture of Urakami Church. It was the largest church in Japan in the 1940s. The gunner who dropped the uh, atomic bomb on Nagasaki, he pinpointed the city by using this church 
to uh, line up his sights to drop the bomb. 10,000 Christians in that city died in an instant. This was city all around them. It's completely wiped out. Only the ruins of the church are left here, um, as you can see. Christianity in Japan never recovered after the bomb. Today, of all the modern developed um, countries in the world, Christianity has the lowest percentage of followers in Japan today. Because the 15,000 Christians who were ready to spread Christianity throughout Japan once the war were over were blown up by Christians flying a plane and dropping a bomb. The Christian pilots who flew and dropped the bomb on the Christians in Nagasaki took communion before they took off here in the States. And then they went and they dropped a bomb and ended Christianity in Japan. Until Christians become disciples, the Holocaust and Nagasaki will be repeated over and over again by people who call themselves Christian, which means like Christ, but live nothing like he did. Dallas Willard called the modern Christians spiritual vampires, people who want his blood to forgive them of sin and help them avoid divine justice, but want nothing to do with his life or teachings. Imagine if the German Christians actually practiced what Jesus said about loving their neighbors instead of hurting them into concentration camps. Imagine if the crew that flew the atomic bomb to Nagasaki practiced what Jesus said about nonviolence instead of dropping the world's first atomic bomb. Cheap grace makes monsters who feel like they can do anything and still have divine forgiveness. People who believe they can live however they want and still claim to exemplify what Jesus looks like. The first Christians were called Christians, not by themselves, but by people making fun of them. It was a slur to call someone a Christian. It's only used three times in scripture. It's always used by non-followers of Jesus. And they're, it's a way to mock them. They're like, you're like your savior who went to a cross and died. Instead of changing anything, he died. He laid down his life. How ridiculous is that? Christian, like Christ, was a ridiculous thing to the Romans who coined the term. Why did Christians become Nazis? Because they had made belief something that their mind did, not something they did with their lives. Faith affected their future after they died, but it didn't affect their present. If you believe in Jesus, obey his teachings. And this isn't some fringe religious theory like, oh, Alex, you're just getting like fired up. You know, Jesus said this, John 14, 15, if you love me, pray this prayer. No. If you love me, recite this doctrinal creed. No. If you love me, get your theology right. No. He says, if you love me, practice what I've taught you. Love your neighbor. Turn the other cheek. If someone asks you to go one mile, go two. First John 2, 3. John the apostle, after spending uh, almost 80 years reflecting on the teachings of Jesus, said this. By this we know someone really knows Jesus if they do what he taught. Whoever says, I know Jesus, but doesn't practice what he taught, is a liar. So what were the teachings of Jesus? I think it's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the densest collection of Jesus' teachings. Matthew 5 through 7, we looked at them last summer. Love your neighbor. Take action to do what you wish they would do for you. Love your enemy. Bless them. Practice nonviolence. It's easy to say, I believe it is true, but we really don't believe something is true until we act on it. And this way of living that Jesus describes in Matthew 5 through 7 does not make sense unless we believe Jesus is king and that his kingdom is coming and that anything we sacrifice will be restored. 
Sometimes we say we believe with our mouths, but we live as if we don't believe it. Because if Jesus is king, we don't have to fight our enemies. We don't have to win because he's already won. Two would-be disciples in this passage approach Jesus. One wanted to follow him as long as it meant going somewhere familiar, comfortable, and safe. The other wanted to follow him as long as it wasn't today. He's like, I'll do it as long as it's tomorrow or next week or next year. They saw the crowds following Jesus because he was healing, and they wanted in on the action. They wanted to be near the action, and Jesus ends up rejecting them both because following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus always costs you something Here's how the message translation puts Jesus's invitation in Matthew 16 24 Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead You're not in the driver's seat. I am Don't run from suffering embrace it follow me and I will show you hell how self-help is no help at all Self-sacrifice is the way my way to finding yourself your true self or as our translations often put it, deny yourself if you want to follow me. If Jesus is king, that means you can't be, I can't be, someone else can't be, only he is. If Jesus gets what he wants, that means you don't get what you want all the time. Dallas Willard again. This is my favorite quote of his. I, I did a quick search back through my sermons, and I've used this quote like a thousand times, so sorry, but it, I think it's... <laughs> So important. The greatest issue facing the world today, the greatest issue, the world has a ton of issues with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture who call themselves Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of their human existence. So as we end, three things I want us to think about. Are you a Christian? Or are you a disciple? And maybe you're, you're like, I'm watching online, I'm here, I'm just checking out this whole Jesus thing. I don't know if I want to be a disciple. That's okay, you're welcome here, you're welcome to explore and ask questions. This is a safe place, there's no judgment. But with Jesus, there will always come a moment where you have to decide, am I in the crowd, or am I going to be a student of how Jesus lived and loved? Second, if Jesus never brings the healing you're asking for, will you still follow him? We've been praying throughout this series and asking for Jesus to miraculously bring healing in us and for our family and for our friends, for our neighborhoods and for our cities. Will you still follow Jesus if the healing never comes? And finally, what are you putting off? What are you saying? You know what? I'm going to do that. I know it's a good thing. I know I should do it, but I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to do it next week. I'm going to do it next year. I'm going to do it after this happens. Jesus says, no more excuses. Start today. Lord Jesus, thank you for this challenge to my own life. Forgive me for so often, God, wanting to like ease back into the crowd because there's just a whole lot less pressure back there and I can just blend in and I don't have to worry about how I'm living because I've memorized the right answers. God, help me to remember that following you